0: Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Our scripture before the service today is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. And I'd like you to remember as I read what was read for our call to worship, the preceding passage before this in 11 as well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Thank you, Aaron. Please be seated. I do welcome you to Walker Bible Church. It's always good to see
1: those in attendance who are participating in the corporate gathering. We greet those who are watching online. We trust that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to encourage and edify and build up the people of God. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are looking at Hebrews 12. As Aaron pointed out, we intentionally read chapters 10 and 11 and now 12. But All three of those passages gives us the background to the church that was being addressed. And it's hard for us, especially with the persecuted church, to know what they were thinking in that context. I think that Hebrews 12 allows us to perhaps understand in a better way, but we really are not a persecuted church. We might have individuals within the church who go through certain sufferings because of their faith in Christ, but for the most part, we collectively, we on a statewide or national level, are not experiencing the persecution that they were for their faith. Now, it is often said that a husband cannot fully appreciate nor nor the experience of childbearing. To that I would say amen. But I was present for the birth of my two children. I was there. The entire process, however, was on my wife, Kirsten. She is the one who carried the child in her womb. She is the one who went through the ups and downs of pregnancy. And although I shed tears of empathy during the birthing process, and perhaps as a husband or father, you understand what I'm saying, she is the one who endured the suffering. I didn't. She did. And the pain of childbearing. Not me, but she. Thus, I cannot fully appreciate nor understand all that she went through during that whole journey. Such is the case with Hebrews chapter 12. The author speaks to people who are suffering for their faith in Jesus. He speaks to a people who have been imprisoned. He speaks to a people who know what it means to be ostracized by one's family and community. He speaks to a people who have been shunned and forsaken and left alone. This has not been my experience, and for the most part, it has not been our experience collectively. And yet what the author says in our passage continues to find direct and immediate application to those who even now know such suffering because of their faith in Christ. We pray on a weekly basis for the persecuted church, churches that are facing collectively opposition from their community, from their state. And the people to whom Hebrews writes are experiencing that suffering, are experiencing that persecution because of their faith in Christ. Now, I do believe that there is application, a word for us as a non-persecuted people. However, the audience are those who are being persecuted. When we read this passage, it really boils down to one primary idea, which is fix your eyes on Jesus. No matter what you are going through in life, fix your eyes on Jesus. He calls us to align and to focus. When Peter was invited to get out of the boat and come to Jesus, a very familiar story in Matthew chapter 14, Peter lost focus, he lost alignment, and he began to sink. The question asked of him by Jesus was simply, Peter, why do you doubt? Look at me, look at me. I've read when one mountain bikes, and perhaps you are someone who likes to mountain bike, they are told not to look at the rocks and roots, but rather, look ahead and look where you want to go, not where you don't. Thus, in the midst of persecution, advice holds. Look at Jesus. What you look at leads you forward. One of the most asked questions concerning figure skaters is, why don't they get dizzy when they do all those spins? And the answer is that they do get dizzy. But practicing spins, getting used to rotation, and oddly enough, blinking all help. Technically speaking, skaters get less dizzy if they keep the head aligned with the rest of the body to help their vestibular system maintain balance. And another trick is to stare at a fixed point in the distance. And all that finds direct and immediate application in Hebrews chapter 12 to the persecuted church the author of Hebrews says, check your alignment and look forward. Look to Jesus. Alignment and fixed points in the distance keeps us on task in moving forward. And if Hebrews 12 is telling us anything, it is all about alignment with and staring at a fixed point, which is indeed Jesus. And as we've tried to stress in every single one of our studies is that context matters context 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 the reason why we read hebrews chapter 10 verses 32 through 39 and then hebrews chapter 11 verses 32 through 38 is simply because it describes for us the context of the audience to whom hebrews 12 has been written hebrews 12 deals with a church that is suffering and they are suffering because of their faith in christ now everyone in the horizontal suffers. Everyone does. All believers and unbelievers suffer. But this is a suffering that is a consequence of their faith in Christ. Now, like the mismanagement of the warning passages, and we tried to address it when we looked at Hebrews chapter ten. Hebrews twelve has been perpetually abused by the church, as it is irresponsible to use the warning passages as a one-size-fits-all. And we've tried to address that idea. So also it is equally abusive and irresponsible to read Hebrews 12 apart from its historical and literary context. We have often heard it said that God's going to punish you if you sin, and they use Hebrews 12 as evidence of such a statement. That's not the historical context in which Hebrews 12 speaks to. Hebrews 12 speaks to an historical church that is suffering because of their faith in Christ. And that's really what we want to stress. We want to stress what this text means in its historical context. By looking at the larger context of Hebrews 10, which we have already done, and Hebrews 11, and then now Hebrews chapter 12, it will be seen that the discipline being referred to is the hardship one will naturally incur by living a godly life in this world. And that's what's somewhat problematic for us because it uses the word chastisement or it uses the word discipline. And for us, that has strongly negative connotations. And yet in Hebrews 12, the historical context is a church that is facing persecution because of their faith in Christ. And that persecution is described as the discipline, as the chastisement. But it's not coming because God is angry or the church had sinned. It's coming because God loves them. And what's amazing to me is that sounds so paradoxical, doesn't it? It sounds so incongruous. And yet, that's what this text is telling us. When you look at the overarching message of the New Testament, we see that kind of statement being consistently made. And I'll briefly run through these passages. John chapter 16, verse 33, it's the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is with his disciples. He's about to go to Gethsemane. And Jesus says to them, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have persecution. You will have suffering for your faith in Christ. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Second Timothy 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what the church in Hebrews is experiencing. Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42, verse 41, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. We're like, wow! But that is the testimony of today's persecuted church. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, the Apostle Paul, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god those who live godly in christ jesus those who profess faith in christ will go through many tribulations james chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 a very familiar passage consider it all joy my brothers and sisters when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance testing endurance the trial and finally, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, "...in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution." And you say, well, why are we not suffering persecution? Does God not love us? Are we not living godly lives? Just wait. Suffering for one's faith is intrinsic to faith. It is not something that we look for, but when religious persecution happens, we should not be surprised and we should recognize it for what it is. And that's what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. And my desire has always been, I hope that the persecuted church that we pray for on a weekly basis have Hebrews 12, and they read Hebrews 12, and they realize that what they are experiencing is intrinsic to faith in Christ, and that's not a sign of God being angry, but that God loves them, and he's caring for them during that season in their life. Now, that's the context. Of Hebrews 12, it's written to a church, to a people who are being persecuted. They're being pressured to go back to Judaism, to abandon Christ. And as a con- and as a consequence of their stand, of their confession, they are suffering. They are being imprisoned. And yet we will see from Hebrews 12, they, they have not yet suffered for their faith. They have not yet shed blood. Those preceding them in Hebrews 11 have, but they haven't. But before looking at the passage directly, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray specifically for those who do indeed suffer as a result of their faith in Jesus. This passage would appear foreign to us, but may this passage inform us as we look to the future and pray for those who currently suffer imprisonment, injustice, alienation, and separation because of their faith in Jesus. May we understand this passage correctly so that we might be encouraged when we face religious persecution for faith in Christ. Now, encourage us in our prayers for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Help us to see how we can benefit and grow from our study of this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the passage itself has three moving parts. The first is verses 1 through 3 and then 4 through 11, and then 12 through 17. So our study will follow that breakdown. I think it is valid to follow that division. It's a It gives us that structure. The first thing that we see within verses 1 through 3 concerning those who are being persecuted is their perseverance in their persecution. How do we persevere? How do we hold fast Christ? Well, the first thing we have to do is change what we see. What are we looking at when we encounter that persecution? Now, I can make that more applicable to us by saying when we encounter hardship. But all of us are encountering some form of hardship because we exist in a broken world. But I'm wanting us to make sure that we understand what it meant to them then. And what the author of Hebrews calls them to is to change what they see. Notice what it says. In verses 1 through 3, it says, Therefore, in light of what we have just seen in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 11, of our brothers and sisters who have suffered persecution, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And though it does not follow the same grammatical structure, I believe we can take certain liberties and say, Let us, let us, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That right hand speaks to his supremacy. It speaks to his accomplishment. And then verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And again, remember to whom he writes. But our paragraph has these three let us statements. How do we persevere? How do we hold fast Christ? How do we, in a sense, run well when faced with persecution? You have these three statements in Hebrews chapter 12. First of all, let us lay aside the weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, we sometimes say, well, what is the sin in your life that's keeping you from running well? What is the weight in your life that is keeping you from running well? But in that context, the sin and the weight is the persecution to turn back from following Jesus. That's the sin. That's the weight. And the author says, acknowledge that that fact, that temptation to turn back, the weariness that you are currently experiencing of standing fast, of holding fast. Well, lay that aside. Lay that aside. The devil is tempting them to give up Jesus. Lay aside the sin. Lay aside the weight. The second let us statement in verse 1 is let us run with patience. Let us run with endurance. And that word endurance is significant inside of our context. I trust you've heard this before. But the word endurance in our context has attached to it patiently. Patiently endure. It carries the idea of steadfastness, of endurance, of having patience in the face of the challenge, of the difficulty, of the trial. In our context, it is used to convey the concept of enduring faith or remaining steadfast in one's commitment to God despite the persecution. So here we are right now being persecuted for our faith in Christ. The author says, well, lay aside that sin and the weight that is so easily entangling you. The pressure, let it go. And then let us run with patience. Bear up under it. It is interesting, the passages that we read earlier, Acts chapter 4, they were humbled by considering worthy to endure the persecution. And the third let us that we've attached to, structurally to this, is let us look to Jesus. Now, what I find interesting, who is the source... He is the one who justifies and completes. He is the one who glorifies. He began this whole process in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. Faithful is the one who calls you. He will also bring it to pass. He's going to complete the story of which you are a part. There's two graphic words used in verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 2 has the word looking. It's the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament. And it's a participle. That might not mean much for us, a present active participle, but it simply means you have been looking, keep looking. Keep looking. Remember the mountain bike? If you don't look where you want to go, you're going to go where you don't. So keep looking. We have to change what we are looking at, what we see. In the midst of the persecution, see Jesus. Now we could equally make the application today. You are going Through hardship and suffering and trial, it is easily to get distracted. Change what you see. Look at Jesus. Keep looking. And then the word consider Him, verse 3. Again, it's the only time that that Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. Understanding Jesus is the key to the whole problem, the cure for doubt and hesitation. So here I am being tempted to turn back, to leave Christ, to deny Him. The author says, lay aside that sin. Right now, patiently endure and change what you see. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider Him. What's interesting is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It's a familiar passage, but listen to the verse. Paul says, for I consider, consider, that the sufferings of this present time, the persecution that I currently endure for advancing the gospel, are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hold fast. Patiently endure. Keep looking to Jesus. Consider Him. In contrast to all this, He far surpasses everything. And what is equally interesting, the word in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, for consider is the same root word in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider. The word in Hebrews 12, 3 has a prefix attached to it, which adds intensity. Keep considering the value of Christ. Don't let go. Thus, as the church faces persecution, The first action step for endurance is to change what we see. To whom or to what are we looking? And it is Christ. The author then in verses 4 through 11 provides for the church a theology of suffering, which we have seen this before. We've noted it before, but there is a theology, a way we are supposed to think when faced with persecution. We have to change what we see. Now we must change what we think when we face persecution. The author now seeks to put suffering for faith in its theological context. It is almost beyond belief, but the difficulties that they faced are from the hands, and we'll note this in our passage, from a loving father. God's not angry with them. God's not disappointed with them. God has not abandoned them. Just the opposite is true. God loves them. And somehow the persecution is a sign of that love. Now, there are two illustrations in our flow of of the text that are used to encourage those who are currently suffering for their faith. The first are those who have preceded them in Hebrews 11, and then the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered persecution. Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 11, conveys five significant lessons about the nature of God's discipline, of God's Persecution and its purpose in the lives of people, of believers. And that's why we have to change the way we view the persecuted church. The first is found in verse 4. Endurance in persecution. Hold fast to Christ. Don't give up. Don't quit. It might involve imprisonment. It might involve the shedding of blood. It might involve being ostracized by your family, by your community. The hardships that they encounter, and we read that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Those hardships will endure, hold fast. Verses 5 and 6, God's love in persecution. It quotes Proverbs chapter 3. But the metaphor of God as a loving father training his children through persecution is central to these verses. Persecution is a sign that God loves you. It's a sign of authenticity, of genuineness. I am a son of God. And one of the fruits of that sonship is that I suffer persecution for my faith in Christ. You know, there's almost a sense in which we look at the persecuted church when Pastor Giles and I went to Egypt and we talked to a people, a church that was being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And there's an aspect or dimension to their experience that escapes us. But it's very, very real. It's very genuine. And you sense that. And this is what they need to know. It identified them as the children of God. They're not illegitimate children. They're children of God. The fourth significant lesson is found in verse 9. It says, Beside this we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? As you go through persecution for your faith in Christ, there is an element of submission to God. We receive it from His hand. We see that throughout the biblical storyline. I am being persecuted for my faith in Christ, and rather than lash out, rather than deny God and question God, we simply submit ourselves to the overarching working of God. In the larger context of suffering, and I've tried to reference this throughout the morning, the direct and immediate application are for those who are suffering being persecuted for their faith in Christ. Well, there is a sense in which we live in a broken world and we suffer. We experience suffering. We experience loss. We exist in a world where bad things do indeed happen. And we cannot and must not blame God as if He is directly culpable for the action. And neither should we think God loves us less for the hardship. The hardship, rather, speaks more of God's love and your adoption as his child than it does of abandonment and cruelty. I look at the hardships that we face as a family of families, not just individually but corporately, and how are we to understand that? Is God punishing us? Is God abandoning us? Does God love us less? And the answer from Hebrews 12 is no, no. And the last thing we see concerning the lessons in 4 through 11, this theology of suffering, is the purpose of the persecution. There is this refinement taking place in verses 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. And again, the discipline, the context is persecution, that we may share his holiness The pressure and stress from persecution, and if we were to place ourselves in that context, and if we simply stepped back and thought through all of this, the pressure and stress from persecution reveals who we are and whose we are. We encounter that pressure. We encounter that stress. Now, how do we respond to it? Our response reveals who we are and whose we are. And that's what this persecution was doing. Persecution is portrayed as a form of training that, although painful, produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who undergo it. There is some transformational element to the persecution. And I think, well, what's a way to perhaps illustrate what this involves? Well, when someone polishes their car, now I've waxed my car, but I've never polished my car. They rub the polishing agent into their car. The rubbing process has the power of removing blemishes and then places over the car a protective covering. The individual then begins to buff the car so that the car shines. And once the process is done, the owner and others step back and they admire their work and the beauty of the car. Well, the owner is not punishing the car like, Bad car, now I'm going to buff you. No, the car did absolutely nothing wrong. The owner is protecting the car and enabling the car to be what it is. The polishing process enables others to see the car for what it is. And this is no less true with persecution. It shows them for who they are and whose they are. It brings that out. Thus, as we face persecution, our first step is to change how we see, what we see. And the second is what we think. How do we view this suffering? And then the last is 12 through 17. It changes what we do. How do we deal with this in our context in a suffering church? And I believe there's two parts of the paragraph 12 through 17. The first part is us individually, us as a church, but us individually. And we see that with the use of the pronoun. Notice it says, therefore, in light of the fact that we now see Jesus, in light of the fact that we've just seen uh, instruction as to what this persecution, this suffering, teaches us, what's actually taking place behind the scenes. The third thing we see is, how do we then respond to it? Therefore, in light of this, and then notice the prone lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I, I have to believe if, if we were a persecuted church, that we would have drooping hands and weak knees. The pressure that's come to bear on that church is hard and heavy. And then it says, And make straight paths for your, your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let's together face what we are encountering and be built up. Hold fast. Strengthen numbers. We have that language in the first two verses, 12 and 13. Here's what we need to do. Not just for ourselves, but for others. We come alongside and build up and embolden. When faced with persecution, we need to keep telling ourselves not to quit. It'd be so easy to go back. No, don't. Keep pressing forward. And then when you get to verses 14 through 17, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Don't quit now. Keep pressing forward. In neither case is the pursuit on the abstract ideas of peace and holiness. And I would perhaps use 14 as a transition between 12 and 13 and then 15 and following. But when it talks about peace and holiness, it's not in the abstract, but rather on the one who is the author and perfecter of peace and holiness. Jesus Christ himself, both ideas of peace and holiness are embodied in Jesus. And it is from Jesus and through Jesus that we now approach the Father. So in the midst of all this, Keep fixing your eyes on Jesus and understand that God is not punishing you. God is loving you. You're his child. Be encouraged. Hold fast. What's then interesting in verses 15 through 17, it uses the word see to it that no one fails. And the word see occurs only two times in the entire New Testament. It occurs here in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 and then in First Peter chapter 5 verse 2. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, it's translated exercising oversight. It's a word to leadership, perhaps. And the leadership is calling out to its congregation. Don't. And it uses the word don't three times in the passage. Notice what it says. See to it that no one, no one, don't, no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Don't fall short of the grace of God. We've seen this elsewhere in other Warning passages. We are under the sound of the gospel. Believe it. Hold fast to it. Throw yourself at Jesus. Don't fall short of the grace of God. It then continues that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Don't defile the family of God. Hold fast. Hold fast. And this word is for those inside the fellowship who are beginning to turn back, who are questioning whether or not they will hold fast to Christ. And the leadership says to them, don't fall short of the grace of God. Don't defile the family of God. And finally, don't despise the provision of God. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Don't, don't, don't. And again, this is not a blanket statement made to all of us. It's very, very specific. We are a part of the 12 and 13 crowd. The persecuted But within that, there are those being tempted to turn back. And the leadership says to them, don't fall short of the grace of God. Hold fast to Christ. Don't defile the family of God. Don't despise the provision of God. Hold fast. And there appears to be a natural progression in the warning. And the elders must be on guard against those who are in the gathering, but who actively reject the word of God, whereby poisoning the family of God that can ultimately lead others into incredibly destructive choices, like Esau. There's much that goes on in a church that the congregation as a whole is not mindful of, but at the leadership level there are those that we have had to put out, and I'm not asking you to try to figure out who they are, but there's a line that is drawn that must not be crossed. And on occasion people like that show themselves for what they are but we are here to say don't fall short of the grace of god don't defile the family of god by your unbelief and don't despise the provision of god by poor choice the stress points and persecution causes many to fail the word to his people is to hold fast christ if you're tired from the pressure come to church and find those who can support you look to christ The word to his people is to hold fast. Christ, don't quit. Now is not the time to quit. As we face persecution, our final action step is to change what we do. To change what we do. What's interesting is the next section, verses 18 through 29. And it's really a conclusion to this entire letter. But in verse 25, look what it says with me. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And it's not talking about me. Remember in Hebrews chapter 1 that God has spoken finally in his son? Well, listen to his son. And this passage parallels chapter 2. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This whole passage is telling us, Trust Christ, follow Christ, look to Christ, consider Christ. Because if you reject Christ, if you reject Christ, there is no hope. There's no escape. And you might ask yourself the question, well, am I one of those who rejects Christ? And I would say, well, do you reject Christ? And you would say, then you're not one of them. Do you realize how simple that is? You believe in Jesus. And if right now when I say you believe in Jesus, you say, well, no, I don't. Well, then this passage is speaking directly to you. If you reject Jesus, there is no escape. But we are not of those people. So this is a word. This is a word to a church that is experiencing persecution. There is immense pressure on them. And the author writes, in the midst of persecution... Fix your sights on Christ. Know that this is not God being angry with you. He's not punishing you. He loves you as his child. And yes, your knees get weak. Yes, your hands droop. But hold fast, Christ. And if you reject him, there is no hope. But if you accept him, then you escape the judgment. You know, when we look at it in this historical context, because we are really not a persecuted people, there is a minimal amount of application that can take place. But it ought to enable us to perhaps have some empathy with the persecuted church, that they would look at Hebrews 12 and they would be strengthened by it. But what is our takeaway? This passage does not answer for us all of our questions concerning the heartaches and headaches of life. As a church family, we have faced the passing of loved ones and the difficulties of life. Well, how do we, in hardship, in loss, in absence, keep going? Fix your eyes on Christ. Hold fast to Christ. And as a church family, we have faced the passing of loved ones and the difficulties of life. And much of life is not the result of direct or immediate sin, but it just happens. It just happens. Much of it can be ugly, and yet if the persecuted can find comfort in their trials from Hebrews 12, can we not also? As you experience life and its hardship, stay the course and look to Jesus, right? He's the only hope you got. Look to Jesus. And in looking at your struggle, know that God loves you. God loves you. He has not abandoned you, and He does not hate you. Do not see your situation as God overlooking you or not caring for you, but rather as God loving you. God loves me. And then finally, in your struggles and the struggles of others, learn to do the right thing. Speak the right thing. Come alongside people who are struggling. I know your loss. I've experienced loss and absence. I know your suffering. I don't forget that your loved ones have passed, that you go through hard times. But what answer I have is look to Christ. And we come alongside each other because we all will have at one time or another weak knees. We will all have drooping hands. But together we can call each other to Christ because he is indeed our hope. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we look at Hebrews 12, and and I trust we understand the immediate historical context for the recipients of that word. And even today, for the persecuted church, Hebrews 12 rings true, and I pray that they would believe the promises that are offered in Hebrews 12. And for us, on perhaps a very applicable or practical level, we all go through hardship, we all go through suffering, we all are carrying burdens that are massively oppressive. And the stress point, the pressure point is so great. Father, I pray specifically for all those people that come to mind that they would look to Christ, that they would consider Christ, that they would fix their gaze on Christ and that somehow Hebrews 12 would inform them that God is not hating on them, God is loving them. He's right there with them, journeying, guarding and guiding. And Father, when we speak to those people who have the droopy hands and the weak knees. Father, may we come alongside and just encourage them and hold them up in prayer, knowing that you are there, that you are strengthening them in their hardship. So, Father, thank you for this family of families. Thank you for the text of Scripture. We are trusting you in all things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.